0: Our second scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Philippians, chapter 3, verses 4b to 14. Listen again for what God is saying to us as the church. If anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews... As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the Church. As to righteousness, under the law, blameless. Yet, whatever gains I had, those I have come to regard as loss because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and I regard them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his suffering by becoming like him in his death if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained this, or have already reached the goal, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Beloved, I do not consider that what I have made, that I have made it my own. But this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, and straining forward for what lies ahead, I pressed on toward the goal for the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? God, as we come to you this morning, we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So can I just say, what? There's a lot going on there. What? There's like a flex about who you were. There's this whole thing about giving up everything. There's this future race we're running. That's like a lot. It's a lot for 10 verses. What? What? So I thought maybe we could break it down a little bit. When we look at this scripture, we're looking at a text that's structured in terms of the past, the present, and the future. And in each instance, Paul is asking, does this matter? And he's not doing that just to be kind of obstinate. Um, It's actually a rhetorical form of argument he's using called consolation. And in this particular form of consolation, You are trying to refocus people away from what they're hyper-focused on and towards the things that matter most. So for Paul, this entire section of Scripture that we read today is not a question about relative values of one thing or another in context. This is a question of absolutes. The point that Paul is stressing, spoiler alert, is that in everything we have, everything that we know, everything that we place our identity in, has to be evaluated against the absolute fixed value revealed in the reality of a resurrected Christ. And just as a sidebar, he's doing this because Philippi is a major city of commerce. He is speaking to people who make their business in trade, who know a lot about the ups and downs of business and commerce and all of those things. So his language is intentionally economic in some ways because the people he's speaking to know that language well. But let's start with the past. So we start this text this morning with Paul recounting a long list of credentials about his background, which are, if you don't know, pretty impressive. He is a member of the people of Israel, which means he is well within the pre-established covenant that God made with Israel. That covenant is his inheritance. It's his birthright. As a member of the tribe of Benjamin, he's also associated with some of his people's fiercest military leaders, queens and kings, including Queen Esther and King Saul, who you might remember he's named for before his name changes. And as a Hebrew born of Hebrews, not only is this his birthright and his inheritance, but he's been in that Tradition and lineage for generations. Being a Pharisee means he's well-versed in Mosaic law, and he holds it in incredibly high regard. When he speaks of zeal, he is specifically aligning his actions against the early Christian church with those of a man named Phineas, who Numbers 25 tells us was the grandson of Aaron and who was granted a covenant by God of perpetual priesthood and peace because he killed two people who were perpetuating the worship of Baal and ignoring God's commands. Paul, like Phineas in his past life, was good at protecting the purity of his people. And on top of all this, he's done it while remaining at all times in adherence with the Mosaic law. This is not to say that Paul has never sinned, but in terms of what God has laid out for the people of Israel, he is technically correct. He has hit every mark he is not lacking. He is not out of line. He is in line with the covenant. But he is flexing in this way, or he's telling us these things for two reasons. Firstly, as we're going to see a little later, he's doing it to underscore a radical break between who he was before his encounter with Christ on the road to Damascus and who he is now. This encounter literally changed his life. It reordered every priority he had. And it didn't happen because of something he did or someone he was. It was enacted by God. And everything since then has been his response. And second, he's doing it to address a community concern that keeps cropping up in the churches that he's writing to. Before we get there, I just want to make an important point about what this text is not. This is not a proof text for supersessionism. This is not an argument that Paul is saying, once I was Jewish and then I met Jesus and now I'm Christian and that's great for everybody. That's not what's happening here. When He was Saul, he was squarely within the existing covenant. He was not guilty or lacking before God. He was not in need. So the work that God calls him to is not some logical extension of what came before, it's something else entirely. Paul's past and present literally bear no relation to each other. They are separate tracks representing separate covenant realities between God and God's creation. So when he says he counts it as a loss, he's not speaking in a comparative sense about the value or merits of one covenant versus the current reality. He's trying to underscore their radically different metric for locating value, one that he has experienced in Christ. And he's making a claim that for this congregation, this non-Jewish congregation, these people who were outside of the covenant of Israel, This new covenant is the thing to focus on. This is the thing that matters. He's not bringing up his past to dunk on it. But he is leveraging that past to speak authoritatively about what's going on in the present. Because what we don't see right before this scripture is a discussion about circumcision. So communally, what's going on here is that it is the early days of Christianity. Christianity. And all over the New Testament, we have indications that people are trying to figure out what all this Jesus stuff means. Are we still beholden to Jewish law? Shouldn't we be integrating ourselves into a set of cultural practices even though we weren't Jewish before? Do we need to get circumcised in order to ensure we are aligned as best possible with the existing covenant? Shouldn't we have a visible sign? And Paul says, no. He's marshaling all the credentials of his former life in order to authoritatively redirect the conversation. Don't focus on the past, Paul says. Don't worry about what other people have done or are doing. That's not for you. Worry about the covenant you're in now, the life you're called to live now. That's what matters. For Paul, a conversation about aligning oneself to be technically correct in alignment with an existing covenant misses the point completely. Because what Christ represents is something completely separate. It's a new covenant. It has new parameters, new expectations, and it is for a new people. It is for you, and it is for me. And because he knows that he's also able to speak differently about what's happening in the present moment. Because what you have to remember about Philippians is it's a prison letter. Paul is not writing them from some comfy couch down the hall in the pastor's office. He's not writing them from the Four Seasons Rome. He's in prison. And he's in prison because of what he's been preaching. And he's writing to people who love him. Who are incredibly worried about him, which makes sense. This faith they have, this religion they're beginning to live into, is in direct conflict with the values and the expectations of the culture around them. These are people, remember, who live in the hub of commerce and power of Rome. Philippi is a rich city. Its propaganda is everywhere. Walking down the street is like walking through an ancient Times Square, with every billboard blaring, hyping the empire's achievements, underscoring the limitless power, elevating Caesar to almost godlike status. So the idea that their pastor, their friend, the planter of their church has been imprisoned by this state? hmm Yeah, they're a little stressed out for Paul and for themselves. And that's why Paul is writing to shore up their faith, to offer them consolation, to point out what really matters. Because he knows that people who know what matters are confident regardless of the context they find themselves in. And the thing that matters to them and to us, Paul insists, is Christ. Christ. He looks around his current situation and tells them that what matters most in these hard moments is the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. The Greek word here is kurios, a person exercising absolute ownership to be the ruling power, the authority. Paul is making a radical claim about who actually has any sway on his life. He sits in prison, writing to an occupied people surrounded by Roman propaganda, and from that position he confidently said, Jesus Christ is my kurios. This is a complete rejection of the power of the Roman state. They can do what they want to him. Imprison him, enslave him, try to punish him. But Paul is clear it is only Christ who has ownership of him. Only Christ's authority holds any weight or relevance to who he is and what happens to him. And in light of that, it is not only his past, but also all valuative measures in the present that Paul decries as rubbish. For the sake of gaining Christ and being found in him, that is what matters. Paul wants us to know that Christ matters more than who you have been, than what your present circumstances are. And more than knowing it, he wants us to act in that knowledge. And that's the pivot to the future if we need any more evidence of the way that Christ radically and fully changes where we find value in the world, we have only to look at the insistence that Paul wants to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his suffering by becoming like him in death. Who wants that? What? I mean, come on, Paul. Neither of those things, suffering or death, sound like things that would be anything in the world that anybody would want. But Paul is reminding us that in Christ, there is not just a radical revaluation of the things we value highly, it's a, re- it's a radical revaluation of everything. The most, that the most powerful, the most valuable thing Christ did was take into himself the worst possible thing that anyone could imagine and make from it a new vision of life is a complete revaluing of everything, and that is what Christ offers us in the resurrection. It's a radical departure from the cacophony of messages clamoring for our attention, promising to make us better, stronger, more confident, less vulnerable. Paul reminds us that in Christ and life in him, the only thing worth truly striving for is a life that emulates the one that Christ lived. And understanding that informs not only how we interpret current situations, but what is possible in the future. For in the suffering and the death, we see a Jesus who comes and sits with us at the lowest, darkest, most difficult, and painful points of our lives, and who values us when we have nothing to offer and cannot see beyond the all encompassing weight of the present moment. And in resurrection, Jesus looks into the void that seems to threaten to crush us and whispers a divine no, no, this is not the end, no, this is not the totality of you, no, you are not alone, because you are mine and you are in me. In Christ Christ there is new life. There is nothing about life in Christ that we self-actualize, that we make happen, that we can force into being. This is 100% about understanding what is possible through a lens of a God who has created a radical break between you and who you were, who offers you a fully new vision of your identity. And it is in that hope that we exist, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, pressing on toward the goal of the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ. May it be so. Amen.